Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our Rembaum Institute series, The Poetry of Prayer, with Rabbi Joel Rembaum. We are on page 78, and we are at the last paragraph. And that last paragraph picks up on something I mentioned last time, which is all of these descriptives at the beginning, that whole, remember the 16 descriptive words that were all lined up one after the other following this pattern that we've been seeing of, of over, of, of uh, what shall we call it? Vocabularic overkill. How's that for a word? Vocabularic overkill. All right. That seems so strange to us. You know, talk, reemphasizing the fact that the God of whom we speak is a God who transcends our normal way of, of thinking and understanding, because that's what God is. And so they're using this prolific language, shall we say, in order to make that point. But then I showed you also that many of those words play out in the narrative uh, that follows, and they're just plucking out, the author is plucking out from those 16 words, significant ones, that, that emphasize generally the, the, uh, the fixed nature, the, the fixed nature of what it is that we're talking about and what is it that we are talking about. That's in the last paragraph. Okay. Okay. Let's read the English translation. Truly you are Adonai, our God and God of our ancestors, our sovereign, our ancestors sovereign, our Redeemer and our ancestors' Redeemer. You are our Creator and the rock of our deliverance, our Redeemer and help. You, so you are known throughout time. So you are known throughout time, for there is no God but you. Okay. That is, that is exactly what it is that is true and certain going back to the beginning of this thing, right? Truly, God of the universe, sovereign protector, Jacob, shield of our deliverance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? No, no, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Go back to the middle of the page. Truly, this teaching is constant, well-founded, enduring, righteous, trustworthy, beloved, cherished, desirable, pleasing, awe-inspiring, majestic. Okay? What is the, of what is this teaching? This teaching is what's in the last paragraph. You're God, you're our God, you're our creator, you're our redeemer. This is a fixed eternal reality. That's what this is saying. Okay, that's what this is talking about. I, I see your hand, Bert, just a second. I want to show you someplace else an abbreviated version of this and the next paragraph that we're going to look at tonight. If you will please take your Machzor in hand, I'm going to use the, I'm using the Leif Shalem. But if you go back to the Marib service, the evening service for Erev Rosh Hashanah, and for all days, all three, all, all 365 days of the year, this part of the service is operative. What we're going to look at right now, this is not unique to the high holidays, as is the case with what we are studying right now. Okay. But if you look at the bottom of the page, look what it says. 
Emet ve'emunah kolzot v'kayam aleinu. Truly, this is our faithful affirmation binding on us, Cole. And what is it? That Adonai is our God and there is no other, and we, Israel, are God's people. That's what this is all about. Okay? All right? So let's, let's, that, that's what, the, and that's what, what's, you're, you're looking at on, on, uh, page 78 as well. Okay? That's the point. So what's on page, on the, the, the earlier page in Mariv is the, the, like a, an abbreviated version of this. And then it'll feed into the Exodus from Egypt. Okay. Which is the corollary to this. Okay. We, you are our God. We are your people. This is a relationship. It's eternal. That's what this is saying. Nothing can, nothing can, can, uh, pull the foundation out from under that. That's what this is affirming. Okay. Now. From a certain perspective, this is a very challenging statement, isn't it? Right? Uh, as people who live in the 20th century, right? Holocaust. That's, that's what God does to his people. Right? And, and that's, that was, this is one of the reasons why people who were more or less religious, not all of them, but a substantial number just stopped believing. Let's be honest, right? Now there were religious people who continued to believe. Okay, and they had and they had to figure out ways of of justifying how the Holocaust could have happened. And I think most of them came to the conclusion that it was people, not God, and that God just doesn't operate always, you know, in a manner where suddenly he God comes in and you know takes over. Uh, now, the tradition teaches, the Bible teaches, and the rabbis teach, that the reason why catastrophes happen to us is, yes, it's our fault, because we haven't done things right. Right? That's their explanation. Now, the problem, though, has been that there have been times when that didn't satisfy people. Okay. I mean, I've studied the First Crusade extensively, okay? 1096, okay, when the a group of, there were different, there were different, you know, there were different crusades, right? And different groups even. In the First Crusade, there were actually three different groups. The third group was a kind of a rabble. These were these young, young men, well, age category still works today, ages 18 to 25, would moved into cities, couldn't find jobs, and they were angry, they felt cut out, and they were looking for something to give meaning in their lives. So a guy said, hey, let's go, and we will go to Jerusalem and redeem Jerusalem from the enemy, from the Arabs. We'll join the group. And so he put together a couple, of, I don't know what he said, up to 10,000 people of this non-undisciplined group of younger men. And he said, they all said, we're on our way to take care of the enemy in Jerusalem. On our way, let's take care of the enemy here, the Jews. And so when they hit Germany with its three major centers, uh, Mainz, Worms, and um, 
Spire, the three major centers of Jewish life along the Rhineland. Uh, in, in two of them, Mainz and Worms, they basically destroyed the Jewish community. In Spire, the bishop was actually able to save them. And so there, nobody, nobody got to them. Thousands, we don't know how many people actually lived there. The number that is said died in Mainz, traditional number 6,000. Okay. That may be an exaggeration, but we doubt that there were 6,000 people total. And you know, it's, it's hard to know, but lots did. But the point was these were the major centers of Torah study for Northern European Jewry. They were filled with people whom everybody knew were righteous, God-fearing, studying Torah, you know, honest, decent people. Why did they die? And the people who lived in the following century, the 12th century, came up with all kinds of explanations. One of them is an old traditional one, that the uh, the the sin of the golden calf. Did you, I don't know if you've ever heard this. It's in Midrash. It's because it was used before. How many people died because of the sin of the golden calf? A few thousand. 33,000. Wasn't it 33,000 in Bamidbar? Mostly from... No, no, no. No, No, I'm talking about specifically at the time of the golden calf, not the people who died in the the desert. The numbers are... The number given was 3,000 died... uh, um, and a few more, there was a little plague that God put on them. Eventually, it all stopped. Basically, and these were presumably the the people who led this uh, this thing against uh, you know the, the golden calf thing. But it, it, those are the numbers aren't important really. The point is, the people didn't suffer because of this. The the wandering in the wilderness was not because of the golden calf. It was because of the spies, not the golden calf. Okay, so so then how could God have let the people off so easy, right? I mean, Moses talked him out of it. He wanted to remember, he says to Moses, I'll start over with you, which is the same thing he said after this, after the scouts, after the 10, you know, after the 10. And he said that after the flood? What? Didn't he, didn't God say that after the flood? I'm going to start over. Yeah, basically. That was with all humanity, I guess. Yeah, no, right. Yeah. yeah. Right. But that was designed before the flood, actually. Yeah. Anyway, um, the, the, uh, so the point is the people, the, 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 so people, the Midrash developed that in a generation that is perfectly righteous, God punishes, God takes it out on the righteous people of that generation because God knows that these righteous people will not deny their faith in God in the presence of this punishment. They will die as martyrs. And so that was used to explain to some degree why the people suffered at the time of the Bakakwa revolt. And it had been used subsequently to explain Something like, and you see in the in some of the literature that was written after the First Crusade, I'm talking about literature, literature written in the first half of the 12th century, the 1100s, and there's a whole literature on on this that was written at that time. 
So this was a very common explanation. But that too did not satisfy a lot of people. Rashi, in his commentary on what's called Isaiah chapter 53, it's really Isaiah 52, 13, the last part of chapter 52, 13, 14, 15, I think, and then chapter 53. It's called the suffering servant prophecy, the suffering servant of God. And it talks about the suffering servant who dies to atone for sin. Okay. And the implication there is it's not for the sinfulness of the people. It's rather for the sinfulness of the evil ones who cause the people to suffer. In other words, they're dying for the sins of the, of non-Jews. Okay. Now you think about it. Now there are some early Midrashim that point to that, but Rashi spells it all out in his line by line interpretation of that chapter in Isaiah. And if you think about it, Rashi is saying that these people, particularly the righteous within the Jews, are the essence of this sacrifice. They are dying to atone for the sins of others, of non-Jews. Okay, so you can see the hint of some other concept of a Jew who died for the sins of non-Jews. And it could be indeed a kind of a dual purpose thing that Rashi was doing, which is number one, to try to propose a solution to this intolerable question of why would all these righteous people die? And two, to say for the Christian world, who interpreted that chapter as referring specifically to the crucifixion, that no, wrong. And the fact is, and this is the most important thing, in subsequent generations, that became the most common interpretation of that chapter. Rashi's interpretation was picked up by dozens of later commentators who just continued to to teach that. So if you ask the Jew who knows about this stuff, who's the suffering servant? Jew would say, we are. We're the suffering servant. Did it work? Possibly, given the reality, because that was not the end of the suffering of the Jews, to be sure. Um, It's hard to know. But my point is, what we're reading right now, one gets the sense that the intensity of this prayer as it appears here in, in the Sidur, in the Maxor, okay, and it's repetition basically in the Maru service as well. It, one wonders if this was not an explanation or not an explanation, an affirmation of faith with all its hyper overemphasis in response to what had happened in Eretz Israel between the years of 70 or let's say 66 and 135 of the common era, the destruction of the temple and the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt. And it too had a profound impact on subsequent generations of Jews. And that's when, as I said, some of these other Midrashim were referred to, right? The, the meeting out of the, the the sin of the golden calf, over spreading it out over generations, so there's no mass destruction. 
Okay, that was the idea. God spread that punishment out over generations of righteous people so that there would be no mass destruction of the people, because there never was. Okay, now it may have been that in the Jews of the Middle Ages that that answer didn't work, because in their eyes, there was what they saw as a mass destruction. If you lived in Germany, you know, what else would you know about? You, you know, they were not, they didn't turn on the news as we do and learn what was going on in France <laughs> or England. You know, they didn't know. So they, it was like the world was destroyed. Anyhow, but I think that here it may be a way of not justifying, but a powerful, what in the eyes, I see your hand, in the eyes of the writer here, the writer was saying that no, in spite of everything, in spite of everything, God is our redeemer and God will redeem us. And that's the background to the Ezrat Avotenu, which is it follows on the next page, which we will read in just a second. I got two hands. Okay, Bert. Oh, I Do you remember? So, yeah, okay. I actually I have a question first and then I want to go back. Uh I know you'll say the later Gaonic period, but when was this prayer written? In the Gaonic period. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, nobody knows. I, I will say this. But it's Middle Ages. Yeah, no, early. No, no, but this is so filled wow. with this repetitious style. And you're going to see it's it's embedded in this paragraph on page 78. And it continues in Ezrat Avotenu, not necessarily in the same way, but it does continue. This repetitiveness, this quasi-poetic statement about God's what God represents. The original uh thing and that I, was and wait a minute, and that yeah. mysticism developed as far as the scholars today are knowing, sometime in the late Talmudic period. Uh, the other comment it was something I read this week. Last week we were talking about the those you say sixteen because you're including Emet, I think. Of course. The, the fifth the fifteen words that begin with Vav and the yeah. 15 steps, some people said it was related to the 15 steps, uh, wow. the temple. And I read, I read another thing this week that it's related to the priestly blessing that has 15 words that I thought was interesting. Right. Okay. But I'm not sure what it means. Vav, but it's but there. Hebrew grammar would require the Vav. Right. No, no, right. Some specific things you want to, and you want to emphasize the uniqueness of each one. Yeah. So you make this and this, well, this and this and that, and this, et cetera, et cetera. So, but that's nice. Again, they'll, they'll make midrashim <laughs> find meanings. Not mine. I read it somewhere. We do midrash all the time. <laughs> you know. Okay. Taibel. Um, just a, a comment because you started down the first crusade, which took me a certain place historically. And you talked about Germany and France, but there was also enormous impact in England because one of the factors that led to the expulsion of the Jews in England the 400 years was not just that first blood libel, but also the impact of what they thought about the First Crusade. And I think also for us as Americans and anything else, part of when the Jews were expelled, the crown got most of the Jewish wealth. But in Oxford, what became Christ Church College Balliol, and they, at least those two, they got the wealth of the Jews, which which became a certain structure that 
in so many ways has shaped, I think, us as Anglo-Americans with this whole Jews expelled, confiscate, whatever. So I just wanted to toss that in there in terms of impact on American Jewry because of the history First Crusade. Well, I think there's no question that that what was happening in all of the situations, remember what happened in in uh, England uh, basically happened, the, the, the York riots were in the early 1100s. No, 10, no, that's right. They were in the early 1100s. So, I mean, it was in the, in the 12th century, really, that you see, uh, the thing in, in things in England exploding, but that didn't, the, the, the expulsion, yeah, was in 1290. So it took a couple hundred years. But one of the things though, that developed in England, and this goes back even to the York riots, was the money lending. Okay. And that, that was to some degree a factor in Germany in the first crusade. But there, it was more a matter of the the tension that existed in terms of mercantile activity, because the Jews at that point in 1096 had not moved full time into money lending as they would in the 12th century. So there, it wasn't a matter of money lending; it was a matter of competition, uh, because the 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 Christian, the, the guilds in these towns, you know, held control over all of the matters of industry. Jews could, the Jews could do things for themselves, but you don't have major Jewish leather workers or major Jewish clothing workers, etc., as you did in the Arab countries, because these, these guilds, these Christian guilds locked the Jews out yes. and the Jews were basically, you know, had built their wealth on, on, on mercantile activity. All right. So that I see your hand just a second, Susan. Um, but the, the key thing was in England, it was money lending. And that became a major issue from that point on, because increasingly you know, over the course of the 12th and 13th century, um, yeah, 12th and 13th centuries, the Jews increasingly became money lenders because the Christian merchants had taken over the international and to some degree local um, mercantile activity. So that's why Jews became moneylenders. Now that also, of course, has had a profound impact on the European view of the Jew, right? And to this day, we're people, we are money grubbers, right? We uh, live our lives based on money, right? I mean, that's, that's still there. It's still here. There's no question. It's still here. And, uh, that came out of basically 1050 to 1300. That's 250 years of, of, of Jewish money lending. 10 to 13, did I say 1500? No. I'll say it again. 1050 to, yeah, to about 1300. That 250 year period, give or take on either end, is the main period of Jewish money lending. They continued after that, but, after that, their resources had been depleted, and it's as we go into a serious decline in many places, not everywhere, but in many places of the Jewish economic situation. Okay, that's that. All right. Anyhow, so yeah, Taibel, what you're suggesting is there, there is a spin-off from all of this in terms of how the Jew was viewed, right? But also the other thing was, 
what the Crusades taught the Christians was they could get away with, the, I mean, again, these wild people and then wild clergy types like, you know, the Mendicant Friars, right? The Franciscans in particular, no, the Franciscans and the, the Dominicans, the Dominicans were even worse. Um, and their treatment of Jews and how they riled up the, the, the European communities against the Jews because even though Christianity had defined Judaism as a tolerated religion, these extremist friars were extremists and they didn't want to tolerate the Jews at all. Okay. And they ended up being very influential in that regard. So, and, and that created the stigma of the Jew as moneylender, the stigma of the Jew as a person who uses Christian blood, right? The blood libels, all those things came out of this period of, well, what should we call it? Chaos in terms of the Jewish communities in the second half of the Middle Ages. Yes. Okay. So now one more hand, uh, Suzanne. Um, uh, just a footnote. Uh, I had read that the Jews were significant lenders to King Richard I. Um, and of course, since the first crusade was such a failure, um, that also, uh, was a factor in, uh, um, the, uh, first pogrom against the Jews in England, uh, because the king was in no position to pay the Jews back. <laughs> Well, it's possible, but, uh, but I think the major, but in England in particular, it didn't happen until later, uh, when what they did was, uh, and, and there the, 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 the monarchy did collect the, uh, the money. That was later on. It was later on. I don't know. I, I've never heard made the point that, uh, that, uh, you know, Richard, uh, you yes. know, that, that that was the, the cause of that. Not the only cause, but a contributing factor. It may have been, but it may have, but the point is that, that makes, that means that I think more importantly, it, it, it led to the conclusion that perhaps the royalty couldn't, could, couldn't defend the Jews and stand up for them as they had in the past. And that became a factor also over time. Yeah. Or the, or, or the royalty themselves became powerful forces in demeaning and reducing the status of the Jew. That happened particularly in France with, with the man who's, who has a city in, in uh, Missouri named after him, St. Louis. St. Louis, Louis IX, destroyed the Jewish economy in France because of the money lending. Because it put a Jew, says the, said the popes, puts the Jew in a dominant position over the Christian, and the Jew is supposed to be subjugated to the Christian. Okay, enough Middle Ages stuff. Okay, the Middle Ages is a wonderful time in life. I'm an advanced Middle Age person, and I love it. I think it's great. Uh, you know, Anne is here. Annette is here. She is a senior advanced Middle Age person. So, you know, we love the Middle Ages. All right. Turn the page, 79. Abe, Abe was really senior. Wait, wait, did somebody have a hand up? No, I just said Abe was really senior. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, so this is the next, this is the continuation of it. But you, and you see, it's considerable. 
But look, let, let's look and see what it says. All right. So I'm, I'm just going to the the English translation here is pretty. I'm not going to look right now at the at the linguistics yet. I just wanted you to see the flow of the ideas here. Okay, and understand that, that this is a further statement of the hopefulness that the, that the author was trying to generate in the hearts of the Jews. And by the way, just another point, if this is indeed the product of the Jews of Eretz Israel, uh, as it could have been, or it could have been Babylonia, but we're not sure. A lot of the style is Eretz Israel style, okay? But if indeed it was, I want you to keep in mind that from the from the beginning of the fourth century on, the Jewish community in Eretz Israel was being demeaned. Now it's at the wrong term. Its rights were slowly being taken away as an autonomous community by the Christian rulers after uh, Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of the empire. And the imperial powers begin to, to, to you know, to get involved with the with defining the, the role of the Jew. Christian now, Christian influenced rulers. If you look at the law codes that begin to emerge, you see a diminishing status of the Jew in, in, in Roman law, in Roman law. And whereas beforehand, Roman law was a first for, force for the stabilizing of the Jews in spite of everything. After the Bar Kokhba revolt, you had a century of basic um, political stability for the Jewish community in Eretz Israel. All right? And it's in the fourth century that begins to switch. In the fifth and sixth, it gets harder. So that's roughly the time when, the, if they were written in Eretz Israel, that's roughly the time when, when this statement that God will eventually redeem us, hold on, it'll happen, it'll happen. Okay, that's what this is going to be all about. And one line at the end is the key line. So I'm not going to tell you what it is. You can look at it if you want. But anyway, the point, let's, let's, let's read. Okay. So as Radavotenu, the Imotenu, Atahu Meolam. All right. You were always the help of our ancestors, a shield and the deliverer for their descendants in every generation. You abide at the pinnacle of the universe. Your judgment and your righteousness extends to the ends of the earth. Blessed are the ones who hear your commands and place your teaching and words on their hearts. That's the Jews. Truly, you are the ruler of your people, a mighty sovereign who takes up their cause. Truly, you are at the beginning and you will be at the end. Aside from you, we have no ruler who can redeem and deliver. Okay? So this is what goes. It's a continuation from how the previous page ended. Among the things that's emphasized there is God is our Moshiach. That's not Moshiach. That's a mispronounced word of Mashiach. That's the, that's the, the Messiah. God's not the Messiah. Neither is the Messiah God. Okay. All right. So this is Moshiach from the root to Yud Shin Ayan, which means to save, to redeem. Okay. The Redeemer, a Moshiach is a Redeemer. It's not Moshiach. There's a chet that's the end of Moshiach. It's spelled differently. You got it? So this is a redeemer, all right? And deliverer, okay? And the Hebrew is Melech Goel Moshiach. Those two words, Goel, both mean they're synonym. Okay? All right. So God redeems us. 
All right. Adonai, our God, you redeemed us from Egypt. You freed us from the house of bondage. Their firstborn you slayed. Your firstborn you redeemed. And here, if you want to look at the Hebrew, you can see a little rhythmic statement here. Second paragraph in the Hebrew. Third line. Kol b'choreim haragta u'v'chorcha ga'alta v'yamsu bakata v'zedim tibata v'idim he'evarta. So listen carefully. Haragta ga'alta bakata tibata he'evarta. Do you hear it? It's a poem. And that's why it's set up that way. So again, this little mini poem appears in the narrative of the prayer. All right. The poetry of prayer to bring us back to the, to our, 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 our name of our program here. All right. So, so you redeemed, you split the sea, you drowned the wicked, rescued their cherished ones, the waters engulfed their oppressors. Not one of them survived, right? The Red Sea. That's what this is all about, right? Sea of Reeds. Sorry. Crossing of the Sea of Reeds. Yet your beloved sang in praise, acclaiming God for all these things. Your cherished ones offered songs of thanks, hymns of praise, psalms of adoration to the sovereign, ever-living God who is transcendent, powerful, and awe-inspiring, enthroned, enthroning the proud, overthrowing the proud, raising up the lowly, freeing the imprisoned, redeeming the poor, helping the weak, and answering God's people when they cry out. Okay, so here, toward the bottom of the Hebrew, again, you can see how it's laid out, right? Ram v'nisa gadol v'nora mashpil ge'imu magbi ashfalim motzia sirimu fodei anavim ve'ozer dalim ve'onele amo. There's a whole sequence here of all of these redemptive statements, okay? Bringing low the wicked, raising up the, the righteous, etc., etc., Freeing those who are bound, okay? uh, redeeming the poor, helping the poor, etc. All right. So all of this again is what God did, because obviously when He redeemed the is, you know, when we re, when we went from Egypt, the Israelites were not rich. Yes, they had all the gold they had taken from the Egyptians, to be sure, but they didn't own it. It wasn't theirs. It was used to build the Mishkan, right? The tabernacle. Okay. So that's what went on. Okay. God is redeemed. All right. God is the redeemer. And, and that's what this is emphasizing now. And so you see where it's going to head. Right. And, and remember the Exodus is the most important historical event in terms of a historical event in, 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 in the, in the Bible for sure. And even it's, you know, the question is, what was more important, Sinai or or the Exodus? Those are the two biggies, right? Biblical biggies, the Sinai experience and the Exodus. All right. The Exodus, they couldn't have gotten Torah unless they had the Exodus. OK, but they're both. The Exodus actually is an expression of the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham. God, God does not make a promise of uh of Torah right to Abraham he makes promise of the land and and that's the that's the the other thing okay all right anyhow Bert I'm just gonna say I, I think one of the keys to this also is Kayam. yes this was it wasn't just then that the then is merely indicating what it still is now so exactly. this is just a looking back 
Right. And because you did that, that's why we can talk to you today. That's why it makes sense to do an Amidah. Go back to the first line. You were always the help of our ancestors, shield and deliver for their descendants in every generation. Mm -hmm. Right? So this is an ongoing process. That's part of what we're talking about. Right? In every generation. So the bottom line is going to be, well, you'll see when we get there. Okay? Any questions? Okay. All right. So let's. Rabbi? Yes, yes, yes. Isn't as, just because you just looked at that shield and deliver for their descendants in every generation, isn't there a Sinai and an Exodus difference that Sinai came to incorporate the notion of everyone, but Exodus were those who were actually there? You know, there's the, I, I understand it's Midrash, but the Midrash that the souls of even those who were unborn, the souls who decide to ju- choose choose to become Jewish, even they were there at Sinai? That's not biblical, of course. That's Midrash, right? Right. It's rabbinic. But doesn't that make, it's a, in well, a way... It, it's, what it's doing is it's building on the concept that's here stated, so to speak, historically, and transcend, and, and translating into, if you will, theological statement, right? In other words, yes, even the souls, the, 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 they were there in the sense that, well, you want to say they even had learned something about the Torah there, you know? Um, but that, that's, that's more of a statement of trying to express the eternity of the teachings at Sinai, I would say. All right. Um, this is dealing much more with the real life situation of the Jews. There's a, it's a, there's a difference. But they're intertwined. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to negate what you just said, but it's an attempt to, to, to sort of place the spiritual aspect of, of the, uh, of the continuity of God's promises to the people and of Torah, right? Whereas this is dealing much more with the, shall we say, realpolitik in which the Jews actually lived. And it's going to a point, of course, that's going to point in the end to a restoration of the real politique of the Jew in its ideal form. That's where this is heading, right? Basically, the restoration of a Davidic kingdom in the land of Israel. That's where this is heading, all right? Okay, keep that in mind. Okay, so, top of page 80. Our homage is to God on high who is ever praised. The God, God here, by the way, is not defined as the God who lives in the temple, right? Because this is written, all of this, when there is no temple. So where is God residing? In the, 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 the heavenly temple, right? Not the earthly temple. Now, the assumption, of course, is, as you will see, if you, when we, we're not going to read it, but you read the weekday Amida, you'll see, and even not there, even, you know, Techazena and Inabushu Kalatsiyon, that's part of every Amida. Let us, our, our eyes see your return to Zion. You know, rebuild the temple so that we, so you can come and live in our midst again. But at, when this is being written, God's on high. And that makes it sort of harder, challenging for us. On the other hand, you know, there's Midrashim that say that God uh, puts on tefillin, right? And, and God cries when we cry, right? So God's emotions 
even though he may be up there, but he his emotions. But plus, there's the other the other side of this thing. This gets complicated. Remember, there are other institutions where the rabbis tell us that the shechina comes down. Right? People study Torah together. Shechina's there. Right? Shabbos table. Shechina. You know, if you do a real Shabbos, a real Shabbos seder, shechina's there. Right? It says so. Shechina's in your home. Shechina's Shechina's in your in your when you study Torah. Right? My whole thing. I've said this before. You run an honest business. Shechina's there with you too. You got the mezuzah on the door. Right. So, I mean, the point is, so in a sense, they're struggling with where God, where is God? They want God to be imminent and transcendent at the same time. But they know that the, the, his base of operations, though, is up there because the base of operations down here doesn't exist, but it will exist. And then the base of operations will be in Jerusalem. And I think that's a sort of a simplistic way of saying what this is talking about. Okay. Uh, wait, Suzanne, you have your hand up, but Bart, Bert has, oh, okay. All right, Bert, go ahead. You are on mute. I'm sorry, that was from before. I forgot to take my okay. hand. All right. Okay, so now, our homage is to God on high, whoever is ever praised. Moses, Miriam. Oh, see, we added in Miriam. You see it? It says, Moshe u Miriam. Hoorah. We got her in. And that's not in brackets. That's in the regular sense there, right there. Top line in the Hebrew. Because, you know, the tradition was that Miriam also led the singing of what we're going to read right now. Okay? And the people of Israel joyfully sang this song. So, bottom of the other page, we talked about everything. They they sang and sang and sang, right? Okay, yes. Mi chamocha bailim Adonai. Who is like you, Adonai, among the mighty? Who is like you, adorned in holiness, revered in praise, working wonders? Where is this from? Where is this from? This is the Song of the Sea. The Song of the Sea, Exodus 15, exactly. The great poem of redemption. Exactly. So they sang this. In other words, this is sort of an abbreviated version. <laughs> this is, but in, in the, here they're trying to talk about, it fits in and maybe even sets the tone for the way God was described earlier. Because look at the words, Nedar, Bakodish, Norati, Hiloto, Sefela. Those are terms, a lot of them we've seen already in the poetry of, of many of the preceding passages. So it may be that this, to some degree, this even helped shape what was before it. But here it is, okay? And then, go ahead, it says, uh, um, right. So at the edge of the sea, the redeemed sang a new song of praise to your name. Together as one, they thanked you and acclaimed your sovereignty saying, that's the end of the of, of the poem, of the song of the sea. Right? God, Adonai will reign forever and ever. Okay. Of course, so, in the song of the sea, they say, Aziv, Aziv, which is in the singular, that's isn't it? Yeah, that's in the middle of it. Yeah. Right, but isn't that in the singular? I always found that strange. Um, God is... Yeah, no, it is. Aziv is... Moses and the children of Israel... Together said, and you would expect them to say, we, God is our strength. Yeah. And yet it says, God is my strength, which is interesting between oh, the individual yeah, and the yeah, collective. Sure. Hold on. Right. Uh, yes. It's, it's, it's interesting because it's part of, we are in, everybody was saying it as an individual, and yet they were part of the collective. Yeah, it could be. Each one felt, felt the impact of this. 
of the redemption, is, yeah, in a very personal way. That's that it, I'm, it could be. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So it's collective and individual simultaneously. Elements, yes, very good. I like that. Yeah. Um, okay. So they said that right now. Now it's going to go on. Suri, uh, yeah, Suri Israel. Sur means rock. Hear them saying stronghold of the people Israel. Kuma Ezrat Israel, arise and help the people Israel. In fulfillment of your promise, Sufadechinumecha, redeem Judah and the people Israel. In fulfillment of your promise, what promise? The redemption of the land of Canaan. In where? Which redemption are they talking about here? Well, the original promise to Abraham. No, but yes. that was fulfilled. Yeah. That's the point. That's the point. The Exodus proves that God can do uh. redeem. Right? So now, what was the promise? The promise was that, and this is, are you there? Yeah, we're here. I'm here. Okay, I just, I just, my picture flipped out. Hold on. <laughs> Something and I think my I think we're all here. I see everybody. Mike is calling on the phone, (laughs) and since the phone is hooked up to the computer, when she calls, it it throws the screen off. I just have to go and turn the screen back on. Don't worry about it. Everything's under control. Well, while you have that, I just have a question. Sure, Rock. I just let me let me but let me finish the point here. Let me finish the point. The thing what we're talking about here are the prophetic promises especially by the later prom, prophets, that in the end of days, and this is not this after the Babylonian return. And these are prophets that are talking about, I'm talking Haggai, Zechariah, right? Malachi, okay? I'm talking about, um, you know, any of the prophets that refer to the ingathering. I mean, even Isaiah. Um, second the no, but, you know, I mean, but there, there are you read the prophets on numerous instances. They talk about the ingathering of the exile and the Babylonian redemption, which is another proof of God's capacity to redeem. But the problem was it was a partial redemption because the diaspora continued to be in existence. This is written now at a time when there is a large diaspora. In, pra- in fact, it's likely but by the time this was being written, the diaspora communities maybe were even larger than the Eretz Israel communities. Babylonia was thriving at this time and continued to grow, became the great center of Jewish life at the time. And by the time you're getting into the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries in Eretz Israel, the situation there is getting worse and worse economically and in terms of numbers, people were leaving. So, you know, people left. Hmm. Anyhow, um, that's the point. That's exactly the point. So remember, we're, you're talking to God. This is what I was talking at the very end here. We have this plea, fulfill the promise that your prophets made. Because when these prophets are saying that, in whose name are they saying it? Are there, Are they speaking words that they invented? Or does the concept of biblical prophecy mean something else? Whose words were the prophets saying in their prophecies? God. God's words. The prophets, by definition, 
are Nabi'im, a spokesperson. Okay, they're spokespeople. They speak for the boss. <clears throat> and everything they say, and that's why you find throughout the prophetic pieces, it says things like, Nu'um Hashem, Vaidaber Hashem Eli, Vayomer, God spoke to me, or the God spoke to the prophet saying such and such. It's all from God. So the promises of total national redemption that God made, even after the, re- the return of the Babylonian exiles, are still unfulfilled. And yet, God, we know that you do redeem. You promised Moses, Abraham. You fulfilled the promise. Now, you promised us in the diaspora, or those in Israel waiting for the diaspora to come in, you promised us new. There's a big new at the end. New. Where is it? Let's see it. That's what they're saying. And then, of course, what does it say? So you are, I see your hand, Bert, just a second. So you are our Redeemer's call, Adonai Tzvaot, the Holy One of the people Israel. Oh, uh, the God is the God of, of the Tzvaot, right? Of the hosts, the hosts. Remember, this is a God who rules the universe. Surely you can redeem your people. I mean, you created the universe. Redemption of the people. Piece of, it's a piece of cake. <laughs> Nothing. Big movie. You can do it. Like the guy said in the movie, you can do it. Right? So praise that you God who liberated the people of Israel. See, that's the point. All right. So it's a redemption. Now, the Amidah, which we're not going to look at now, but you can look at it. Not the one you're going to say on Rosh Hashanah, but the one you're going to say the day after Rosh Hashanah, between, during Aser Imetruba, but not on Shabbos, all right, the weekday Amidah, as I said before, the middle blessings, if you look at them closely, are the, it's the blueprint for the creation of the messianic kingdom, beginning with the strength, strengthening the individual Jew physically and in their faith, then the ingathering of the exiles, after the land is prepared, we say we, the prayer for rain for the area. When you say Geshem, the, ra- the, the prayer for rain in the middle of the Amidah, that's not for California. That's mm-hmm. for Israel. Okay? So all of these things. So the land is, the people are prepared. Theory, uh, spiritually and physically, the people are prepared. The land is prepared. You bring in the people. You recreate the institutions of justice, right? And, and then, and then you build Jerusalem and the temple. And then you bring in the Davidic king. Bingo. We got the messianic era. Okay. And everything will be okay. God will be residing in God's temple. The king, a just king will rule and we're set. And now the prophecies will fulfill themselves, especially Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11. It'll be and, a just king. And as others prophets say, the nations will come to them, come to the king and, and ask for, for wisdom. Okay. And then, of course, what it says in the other prophets, it's, uh, this is uh, Zechariah, isn't it? There he says they're going to come 
and they're going to come and celebrate Sukkot, right? Every year, the nations are surrounding Israel are going to come and celebrate with God festival of Sukkot. Did you know that? And if they don't, God will be angry with them. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's ultimately where this whole thing ends up. Okay. Bert. Uh, comment and a question. The comment in support of what you're saying, at least according to the Siddur I'm looking at, the line go, Adonai Israel is from Isaiah. Yeah. It's actually a quote from Isaiah 47 that reinforces the messianic aspect of this, which reinforces what you were just saying. Isaiah 47, that's second Isaiah, yes. Right. Uh, the other, uh, just a question. Uh, Tzor Yisrael, which is a common uh, theme, is Tzor the same word used that when, Ro- when Moses hit the rock? Yeah. And are the two related at all? No, no, it just no. It struck no. me. That it's a no, rock. No. It's just a rock. It's a rock, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, no, I, it's interesting. No, no, no. <laughs> no. I mean, look. As you said it, I'm thinking of Moses. How... How is what are the, what was this, what was the material used for building the walls of Jerusalem? That's true. They were rocks, oh, right? Rocks, and in and fact, to split them, they had to hit them. <laughs> right. The altar, the the this a stone altar, not the one that's specified in uh, in the Vayakel uh, Pekude, um, right, in the end of Exodus, but the one that that the Torah speaks of. At the last part of the Ten Commandments, chapter 20 of Exodus, it talks about a rock altar. Mm. That was not the altar for the temple, but this was a local, a local, uh, this is when it, it was built. The, the concept was you had local shrines, mm. which were kosher. At the, at a certain point, they were considered to be kosher. Then later on, trace, because they, they became a, we maybe from the beginning, probably there were elements of pagan worship that had been woven into how they operated. That's another subject. But the point is, it says, should you build for me an altar, it must be of uncut stone. stone. But that's of anim, I think, not 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 sewer. Sewer is a big rock. Okay. Didn't Jacob make an altar? And didn't Jacob make an altar in stones? Part, huh? Didn't Yaakov make an altar in stones? Yes. Yes, exactly. Because way, yeah. Right. Yeah, in Bethel. No, that was the first one. After yeah. he woke up. Yeah. And he woke. slept He slept on a stone, as I recall. Yeah, that's something. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was at Bethel or nearby Bethel. Bethel. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that's this is this is the end. This is where we we leave off now. And the messianic dream is yet to be full. Well, I mean, some people say, you know, again, is Eretz Yisrael, is Midinat Yisrael, is it the, uh, was, uh, um, is it Reshit Smichat Gulatenu, the beginning of the flourishing of our redemption? Or is it Shetahe, that it should be the beginning of our redemption? Because it's not yet. So if you're very optimistic about the future of Israel, you know, and believe that quickly we will resolve all the issues there now to end where we began, 
So you wouldn't say Shetahe, you would say it is the flowering of the beginning of the flowering of our redemption. If you believe it still needs a lot more work, then you would put it in the future tense that will become, it should become the beginning of the flowering of our redemption. So that depends upon your assessment of the current state of affairs. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.